That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the beast. That's the sound of the police. That's the sound of the
sounds are the beast. So we're here with Vanessa McHenry, and we are going to talk about the Central Park Five documentary uh, by was it Ken Burns and his daughter or his wife? It's uh, his daughter Sarah and her husband David uh, McMahon. So they're actually technically three directors. Ooh, and it turned out so well. Usually that doesn't happen with that many uh, cooks in the kitchen. Well, it's interesting. I watched the special features on the the disc, and to hear them talking about the collective effort of them directing mm-hmm. uh, was pretty interesting. Because uh, you're right. How how does that work when there's well more than one director is always a challenge, but three just. <laughs> <laughs> In all kind of family, you know, <laughs> how do you not, you know, squabble or whatever, but yeah, uh, I guess in one way, when a family does something together, they already have a little bit of a established hierarchy. Yes. Well, what's interesting is, like I said, I, watching special features on the disc, I'm glad I did um, because Ken Burns, you know, he has this reputation of decades long doing all these documentaries but he, to some extent, sat back a little bit. It was more his daughter that took the lead. Yeah, which I was kind of like, that's got to be, you know, tough. That Here he's done all these different projects, and now it's like, okay. It's, it was a different format, for one. From his, I don't know how familiar you are with his documentaries. I've seen at least the one on the Civil War and the one mm-hmm. on baseball. Right, well... They're largely uh, narration driven. Mm-hmm. This, not at all. You know, it it was just everybody telling their stories, which I think with this case made it so much more powerful. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the way I can only guess, you know, at everybody's uh, intent at what they're trying to say. But one of the things that I thought about since it was different was... People have been told that this sort of shit happens and is happening all the time. And, you know, there's been such a low level of fucks given, it seems, <laughs> that um, showing it had had to, had to be the call. Right, right. I, I know. It's, uh, well, and, and also I think because this came out of, um, it started basically with, with, Sarah Burns, her undergrad um, thesis was on uh, the role of like racism in the media coverage of this case. And so that's kind of where this all started. And that was 2004, around there. And it just became kind of a passion project of hers. So I, I think, it, yeah, like I said, I think it makes sense that you let these people tell their story and you know, it it makes it so much powerful. It, it makes it so much more powerful. I feel like the more that we, you and I got talking about this, um, the more I sort of remembered it being, mm-hmm. you know, on the news. Because April 19th, 1989 was when the woman was uh, beaten and raped in Central Park, New York City. I, at that time, I was eight. Okay, I was 16 at the time. Okay. 
and I lived in Alabama. I was already I was already watching national news on a very regular basis and semi I was already getting socially conscious mm. and not quite politically active yet. But I remember the coverage was just outrageous. And and I was yeah, I mean to hear the not even just like what you would consider like trashy, maybe local media or trashy local papers, you know, might say something. But to hear what you're, you, you're Tom Brokaw, like the way mm-hmm. he covers some of it too, you're just like, oh my God, it's, it, it just, it's horrific. Yes. But it's just. And the just, mayor, the way he talked too. Oh, Ed Koch. Well, yeah, it's, um, and, and one thing I think that's really good about this documentary and definitely it, it plays so much of a role in this case is the, where New York was at that time. Um, you know, they call it the, the tale of two cities where this, this huge wealth disparity, incredible racial tensions. And Koch came in as mayor in um, late 70s when the city was like on the edge of bankruptcy, just complete ruin. Um, you had parts of the city that were just look like a demilitarized zone. There's, it, it was ridiculous. And, and I know they mentioned a couple stats in the, in the documentary, but I went in and I pulled a few things up because I, I thought it was, I thought it made sense to look at where the city was then. And, and I live, I now live in New York city. I've lived here about 15 years. But to look at where we are now, it's night and day. Um, 1989, there was a population of 17.95 million people. And that year they had 2,246 murders. And then compare that to 2015, population of 19.8 million, 609 murders. (laughs) So about 3 million more people almost. And what, a, a quarter more than a quarter fewer murders yeah it's it's yeah it's it's it makes uh, so many people will say oh new york city it's such an unsafe city well at one time yes it was but gone through all these different changes and Koch did come in and you know was pushing some of these different crime reforms um i mean that's main th- that's one of i guess his main things that got him elected is he but and it ended up going through transformation then into the '90s once Giuliani was elected and implemented some borderline fascist uh, policies, <laughs> you know, that cleaned up the city. But at what cost is very, very debatable. Yeah, that's I mean, a, you spray everything a, with acid; it kind of cleans it. But right, that's a conversation for another day. But. <laughs> It, it's undergone such a transformation, but I mean, yeah, we still have racial tensions. We, we still have the cops with the whole stop and frisk policies and police brutality, you know, mm. it's rampant, rampant. Exactly. That stuff. I mean, it's a lot of that. Yeah. didn't go away, you know, with some of the, I guess the making everything look pretty, but yeah, the murders, <laughs> they're not there like they used to be you know all, all crime actually here has gone down yeah i mean and it seems like it's 
constantly going on. I think the first time I was ever in New York, it was still late. It was around um, 2002. Mm-hmm. And then the last time I was there was, um, God, they're, well, they won't get mad at me for forgetting how many years it's been, but a couple of my friends wanted to get married when you still couldn't marry anybody you wanted. Right. So we did a road trip to New York so they could get married. And that was the last time. And I think it was two years ago. And, you know, just it had always been a couple years in between whenever I went. And it just kind of seemed like not really in a way that I could describe, but I just felt more comfortable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as you know, as a single woman, I have no problem. Of course, I may be braver than some others, but I don't have a problem of, you know, I'm taking the train, the, the subway at like three in the morning by myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't feel unsafe, but I'm also someone who I'm, I'm very aware of my surroundings and all of that. You know, it's not like you can't be stupid, obviously, but right. there's a point that that same point in the 80s when this crime happened you know during the middle of the daytime there were a lot of people who were unsure about taking the subway you know it seemed really separated i was looking at a lot of stuff about 1980s new york when uh court uh our mutual friend from cinema psyops picked Mm -hmm. uh doing turk 182 which takes place in New York in 1985. So I was sort of happy to already be in the mindset, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was a bigger picture instead of a guy from the Midwest looking at New York just in this documentary. Right. But I do think that they, that is crucial to the way that this case played out Mm. because the media played such a tremendous role in public opinion and I mean you you say the jurors I mean how they were picked but I'm sure you can't you couldn't have avoided seeing seeing a sorry my cat you'll you'll hear my oh. cat Zora at some point <laughs> no that's cool um that's what that noise was um you couldn't you can't avoid seeing you know headlines on newspapers as you're just because most New Yorkers you know, we we take the subway to and from work. We don't have cars. We do a lot of walking. So you're forced to see newspapers, even if you're not picking them up and reading them. You know, I, I have to say, because the media coverage is such a an important part of this documentary, I started looking to see what the newspapers were that were printing what. And... A lot of it comes from the New York Post and the Daily News, which are definitely conservative-leaning and have some of the trashiest headlines. And I have a lot of problems with their journalism and everything, but I have to say, if someone's reading that on the train, I will check out the headline just because they use some of the most humorous you know, ways of saying things that they're just, you know, awful in the intent. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's... pulls you in, it sucks you in, it's, you know, so the jurors had to have seen, you know, what all these papers were putting out there, but what was interesting is um, this term 
wilding that Wild, I'm glad you brought that up. I had that in my notes. Um I was I'm re- relying largely on your vast intelligence and specialty in this area, but I made sure I didn't come unprepared. Uh sorry to okay. interrupt you. No, 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 no problem. But I, you know, that term just kept popping up over and over again and I I, I just my my kind of curiosity of well they said that the police, um, you know, this is kind of the police, you know, put that out there to the media. It was the New York Times that were the ones who first started using that term. The New York Times are supposed to be the quote unquote more liberal ones. And, you know, so I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, yeah, they're the paper they, that uh, Trump called out on Twitter. He wants somebody else to buy them and run them properly now. Oh, God. Well, yeah, that's a... <laughs> he's been saying that kind of thing for years. Yeah. <laughs> a businessman here. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a whole interesting thing. Um, so they were uh, the first ones to put the word wilding out. Right. Well, and and like I said, the... Um, in the in the documentary, you know, you have the the news report with Tom Brokaw wilding. New York City police say it's the new teenage slang for rampaging and wolf packs and attacking people just for the fun of it. They, they were this is not this is not a ghetto term or this is not a teenage slang. No, it was bullshit made up by the cops. Right. You know, um, reminiscent of slavery language. Absolutely. Well, and just the coverage you just repeatedly saw in the papers, and that ended up being carried onto the news, was equating this group of black and brown boys to animals, calling them a wolf pack, um, calling them monsters, and, you know, and going berserk, and just, you know, this was... They were preying on this woman. It's just all the coded language that you've seen, you saw back in Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. You know, you saw that with Emmett Till in the 50s. You saw it in the 1930s with the Scottsboro Boys case, which, um, interestingly, actually, um, I know I mentioned to you, I, I've, I've done a lot of different activism, and I first became actually a, I I had heard about this case and I, when it, you know, with the, in 2002 or 2001 to 2002, when there, the exoneration, um, occurred, Mm -hmm. um, the media, they, they barely covered it. I mean, it's, it was very short and sweet what they said, if they said anything at all. Yeah. Third or fifth page. Right. Right. And, and so, and I was kind of getting, and I only lived here a short time at that point. By 2005, I became involved with the campaign to end the death penalty. And Yusuf Salam, one of the Central Park Five, is um, was actually by that point on the board of uh, directors of that organization. And I've, you know, become acquainted with him over the years, spoken on different panels about uh false confessions and wrongly accused people 
and he routinely brings up the case of the Scottsboro Boys in uh, in uh, Alabama as a way to describe. He's like, we were the modern day Scottsboro Boys. You know, that case, it was nine black boys accused of raping two white women. But and then the women lied about it. So and then you find out and we found out recently that the woman in the Emmett Till case, she mm. about him coming on to her. I saw that in the uh, I think the Guardian yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, and I mean, the Scottsboro Boys, that case, they were ultimately exonerated, but it was it was a long you know, series of trials and everything that, you know, went through that. But here in 1989, you know, your, your news sources, your media in general, it's, it was farther reaching, not quite, you know, to the internet stage and social media where we are now. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, this, this lie or this, this race baiting language was just, you know, just thrown out there, pushed out there, and it started getting into everybody's heads. You know, it was seizing on people's fears of, we already live in this unsafe city, and, you know, it was even the, people, you know, there's a certain myth that it was, like, just the white community that was believing this. It was actually some of the the black and Latino communities believed it, too, that they were all guilty. I saw a little bit of that in the documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, and, and that's, it seems, I guess, in a way, surprising. However, it's still the fact of, you're, you're just all this language of fear that's, that was used in the media coverage. You know, it was, it was very much a lead narrative. Right, right. And... So Yusuf Salam, uh, Anton McRae, Kevin Richardson. Sorry, Antron. Antron, sorry. Yeah. Antron McRae, Raymond Santana, and Corey Wise. And And there were a few others that were brought in as suspects, but ultimately not tried and charged for that. Yes, I uh, thought some were taken out because their parents refused to have them questioned without lawyers, so they got set free. Another things where it seemed like the police were going for the easiest targets. Absolutely. And And these were, these were five kids that lived in Harlem, um, in housing projects, all, all came from working class homes and none, they hadn't been, none of them had been in trouble before this. That's the, the other thing too, is that some people are like, how did these parents not ask for lawyers? Well, their kids hadn't been in trouble before. They're not familiar with things, you know. I, I mean, and now everybody sees okay, Law and Order or something, and they're like, oh, automatically, you know, to ask for your attorney. Well, not everybody even now knows that, but right. more people do it now than, you know, almost thirty years ago. Yeah, you know, they they weren't used to the regular legal procedures, and they weren't used to dealing with, say, a police department that seemed trying to get around as many uh, rules as they could to get the outcome that they wanted. Well, and, you know, they were 
under pressure, tremendous pressure to solve it. I, mm-hmm. I understand. I mean, you know, cause you did have a media frenzy. I mean, and, and, you know, and, and Ed Koch, he mentions, you know, he says that this occurred in Central Park and that place was considered holy. So, yeah, you have it. It's, it's in a very high-profile location where everybody, you know, that's a New Yorker, tourists, everybody goes to Central Park. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, if it had been somewhere else in the city, you know, might not have been such a mention. And then the fact that the victim, uh, Trisha Maley, she was white woman, and it worked as an investment banker for Solomon Brothers on uh, on Wall Street. She lived on the Upper East Side, which is notoriously money. Uh, people living comfortably. Living That's the where, New York dream. Yep, exactly. <laughs> yes, they even said that. Um, you know, it's, and it's, I, I don't know, it's, you You see, yeah, you're right, you see it as, that's the New York dream, and, and they do, do mention that there was another uh, rape that happened that same day that didn't get that much coverage, it was a little blur, basically, in a, you know, dug and whatever back pages, and that was actually... It was a rape, and the woman was thrown off of a building and died and killed. And that occurred in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, mm. which at the time was predominantly black and almost exclusively poor. I mean, that's the crack epidemic, you know, that was one of its centers in the city. So... Mm. And that, and it was a black woman who was killed, you know. So doesn't that doesn't get the same papers. mention. Yeah, exactly. Doesn't sell as many papers. That's why you find that hidden on page twelve, while you know the Central Park Jogger is page one. Like you said, people who watch Law and Order or the police procedural shows don't see you know a fourteen-year-old question for twenty-four hours without a lawyer. And then played off a bunch of people he doesn't know in the whole, oh, he said that you did this. You better say something that says he did this. Or, you know, you won't be able to go home. Well, and what's interesting is that the police can legally, uh, how how do you put it? They can uh, legally coerce you. And uh, legally twist some facts so that you, you know, confess to things or to, you know, get you to spill the real details. That's legal. Yeah. Um, and even now. Um, and I, I don't know if I mentioned to you, to you before, but I lived in Cincinnati for a number of years and had a temp job working with the Cincinnati Homicide Department. You did mention that a little bit. And I transcribed confessions, interrogations, 911 calls. And to hear some of that, yeah, you can see how, you know, yes, you might get even a good cop who 
is just under this pressure to solve something quick. I mean, there yes, there are plenty of corrupt cops out there. That's not all of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right, but even the good cops start to go into that territory, you know, and with this case, you had these kids who were being interrogated for hours even before the video confessions were done. And one thing that the Innocence Project has really advocated for is, and you are seeing on, in more cases now, um, as soon as you bring someone in to interrogate them, whatever, if they're a suspect or a witness, you immediately start videotaping. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, do, I will say that there were a couple cases that when I was transcri- transcribing for Cincinnati PD that you could tell that the tape recorder had been turned off and there were pieces missing <sighs> in an interrogation. You know, um, I'm not saying that, okay, they were obvi- you know, obviously framing people, but it's, it's, there have been reforms made. You know, I will say since uh, with police departments since this crime occurred, um, you know, reforms to the better, and the video confessions definitely, I think, provide some very telling details. I mean, because if you, you know, you in this, they're saying that these kids were interrogated anywhere between fourteen and thirty hours. Look, look at the videotape confession of Corey Wise. He looks so tired. <laughs> he looks so stressed and and anxious and just unsure. Like, just he's, I mean, you know, the way he's rubbing his eyes and I think he yawns at one point even. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> no, I'm sorry. That's someone who is obviously tired. <laughs> They're yeah. not thinking uh, right. I mean, if I watched, uh, one of the times I watched this, um, it was without sound. Just yes. so I could sort of see... Uh, how he looked and without sound you just feel what you said I mean he's just he's rubbing his eyes he looks like he's not even really there no no and he was 16 at the time he was the oldest one you know I mean you had two that were 14 two that were 15 and one that were 16 these were (laughs) they're you know practically babies it seems even though yes you can still be devious, hardened criminals. It's, you know, it's not to the level of someone twice their age, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like... Or five years older. Your, your that's, brain is that's a big de- difference at that age, you know? Your brain is still developing at that age. And they were all tried as adults. Um, which is also why their names were printed in the newspapers. Um... Even though they were technically minors, if you're tried as an adult, your name, the meet, the press can put it in the paper. Um, which I didn't necessarily, I didn't understand their reasoning why, like, why were their names out there? But then I started looking into it and it's like, oh, they were tried as adults. Mm-hmm. But they were sentenced, um, all of them were sentenced as juveniles, except for Corey Wise, who was 16. He was sentenced as an adult, which is why his sentence ended up being um, a little bit longer. And he did his, uh, what, Rikers? Well, initially at Rikers, um, which 
is a pretty, there have been all kinds of lawsuits brought recently and ACLU going in talking about abuses there and the way juveniles have been pulled in there. And there's been a lot of backlash about that. Um, but the others were in a juvenile detention facility during the trial and they were, once they were sentenced and were serving time, they served their time in juvenile, uh, jails or rather prisons until they were 18 and then they were transferred to adult facilities. But Corey, when he was sentenced, he was immediately put into an adult prison. You know, when he, in 2001, when he ends up crossing paths again with Mateus Reyes, the real criminal in this instance, um, it was in Auburn, and that's a maximum facility, uh, maximum, uh, uh, maximum security facility in New York State. Okay. Yeah. God. And and I have, and with my work that I've done with the campaign and the death penalty, I've gone to a few of these maximum security prisons, and even just the visiting is is, is harsh is harsh and just to see you know the way that and these aren't supermax like you hear like some of these prisons that exist you know like in california or whatever just to see that the way that okay your prisoners are brought in and out and the how your contact is limited even just sitting and having a discussion with them you know it's um i i i know for one with Yusuf, part of why he made it through, and I mean, he's he's damaged, yes. I mean, he's he he won't deny that, but why he's made it through, he made it through in such good condition, is because his mother Sharon um, and the family was so supportive and was able, you know, to see him. Kevin Richardson's sister in this documentary. Oh my goodness, she. She's so powerful, and I know he had the familial support too. You know, and that, that seemed to reflect in their after prison lives. Exactly, and when you have people who, even if they're not incarcerated when they're juveniles, if they don't have a support system while they're behind bars when they come out, um, how do they how do they reenter society? If they haven't had the support, they're more likely to be offender, reoffenders. They're more likely, you know, to have all kinds of mental problems and problems getting jobs. Like more past the usual, oh, you have, you know, a felony on your record, you know, that restricts you from jobs. But if you don't have a certain support system, you know, fr from the outside, you know, you're, you're kind of done for. Um, and I know Corey Wise, I've, I've met him a few times, and he, his family I know was a little disjointed. Um, his father did die while he was, you know, in prison. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's he's had a, a harder time adjusting to the outside. But again, he seemed he was, the most beaten down. 
Well, he was put also in the adult facility from the get-go. I think that made a difference. I really do. Yeah. And it's so fucked up. Like, if he wasn't put in the adult facility, would they have ever been exonerated? Well, exactly. Exactly. Um, It's so fucked up. I know. But but the thing with the with Mateus Reyes is, uh, yeah, would he have ever gone on to confess and tell the truth if he hadn't run into Corey and seen um, him all smashed? You know, um, but also apparently, you know, at that point, uh, Reyes had supposedly become very religious, and so maybe he would have confess maybe the truth would have come out but yeah i think definitely there was a reason why if anything good came out of Corey staying in that adult facility that was that was the good thing that came out of it yeah i mean i guess i'd like to know if he had the choice to go through all the shit he did to get exonerated or, you know, to have served a sentence in the juvenile facility, which he would have chosen. Right. He seems, I mean, they all seem pretty good hearted people. So I would imagine that he probably would have thought, you know, I'll suffer some more so we can all be normal again. Right. But, you know, because, yeah, it, you know, if he wasn't there, like you were talking about, they weren't really talking about this case after it was over. So would it have even been on his mind? Because when did they run into each other in prison? It was, what, four five years? Okay, so a long time after. Uh... And they were convicted in 90, 1990. Okay. So, yeah, 1989 to 2001. I don't even know how long it would have taken him, even if he was doing a big uh, personal inventory, if he would have thought of it, if he hadn't been face-to-face with uh, Corey. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's true. That's, that's a distinct possibility. Um, But it's also interesting that Reyes makes his confession. It's past the statute of limitations for the rape. So, which I think is ridiculous that rape even has a statute of limitations, but yeah, um, and it's that's a really another, that's another whole two hours also. Yeah. Um, but so I don't know how, how any, how it necessarily affected his sentence. I don't really think it did, but it could have, um, if it's, if it had been under the statute of limitations. So I think maybe. I I would say that might have played, you know, a piece in it too. Is that okay? Maybe you find God and oh, okay, I'm going to wait those extra <laughs> whatever couple years and then, oh, statues run out. Now I'll confess. <laughs> I'll <laughs> contemplate on that for a little while. I'll think about it, you know. <laughs> Do a couple rosaries. <laughs> right. Um it's just uh, you know, it's and and here it ends up 2002 and then it's like the judges okay they're exonerated well you know they'd all served their time by that point mhm the I damage mean, had been done 
damage had been done. And, and granted, I mean, Raymond Santana, where he had served his time, came out, realized he couldn't get a job because they had to register sex offenders, not just convicted mm-hmm. felons, you know. Um, but he couldn't get a job, and he's like, well, I'm going to sell drugs because I don't feel like I have any other choice of employment. And it was mostly just selling weed, right? Um, I don't know. I can't know remember. Offhand. I don't know offhand. Um, but if he had gone and was selling whatever and got pinched for that, and that was his first offense, he would have served less time than what he had already served. Yeah, at least three years less, right? Right. And but because it was a second offense... He ended up and was given a much longer sentence for that. Ugh. But, I mean, at least, I mean, I'm just, you, you know, you know, not trying to be a, you know, an, an eternal optimist. I'm not. But <laughs> at least once this was, you know, everything was overturned in 2002, they looked at his case and said, Okay, time served. You have done more than your time behind bars than you would have done. For, I mean, for this drug charge, it's going to release you immediately. You know, yeah. Like, at before least the like, weekend, right? It was before. It was before Christmas. Oh, I knew it was a holiday. I couldn't remember if it was a holiday or uh, his dad's birthday or something like that. It was. Yeah, it, it was, was Christmas a, though. Yeah, but the case was they were officially exonerated uh, December nineteenth of 2002 and within a couple days i think he was he was out he was out of jail you know so there's at least some justice done i mean (laughs) yeah fucked up to say that but there's just what good is there with this case i don't know i mean i guess it is having you know this case is having you and me talk about this right now. Right. You know, right. I mean, otherwise I might be doing something a lot uh, less mindful. <laughs> well, and I will say that it's cases like this that is part of what galvanized me to become an activist in the criminal justice realm. Because um, initially, when I, I mean, starting in high school and in college... I, it was much, for me, it was much more around civil rights, like women's rights, LGBTQ rights, that kind of thing. But I started seeing more with the criminal justice system that's just so fucked up in cases like this. Mm-hmm. And that's what pushed me to become an activist in that realm. Um, and now, I mean, New York State, they... And I want and I want to bring this up because we we touch briefly on Donald Trump's <laughs> involvement. Yes, but I want I want to go a little bit more into this. Um, I've got all the time you got. Okay, well, I mean, it was less than two weeks after the crime occurs. Um, the kids had been arrested; their names had already been out in the media, and Donald Trump takes out four. Right. Full page ads in four New York City papers that cost him it cost him almost a million dollars of his own money to do that. And he's calling to bring back the death penalty. He's calling for like an increase in like police. And 
Now, the death penalty was abolished in this country from 1972 to 76. And New York State didn't have it at the time of um, the Central Park Five case. They, um, that ended up being brought back in 95, um, which is when uh, we had Governor Pataki and we had oh. New York Mayor Giuliani, which in <laughs> this big, huge push towards, you know, tough on crime, you oh. know, these draconian regulations. Angry and, little man. Exactly. And, I mean, the good thing is we haven't had an execution here since 1963. So even though they brought back the death penalty, people were convicted in death row here. Um, those people weren't put to death. But I started my work, uh, my anti-death penalty work, um, here when it still was, you know, very much on the table. It wasn't until 2008 that New York completely overturned it. Um, and even at that time, we only had one person on death row. I mean, <laughs> it, it was like, it just basically became an excuse to put hand out these incredibly severe sentences so that even if you weren't given the death penalty, you were given a much, the, the amount of convictions, I mean, people who were sentenced to life without parole, Mm-hmm. That just increased incredibly during that time period. And it's, it's, I think right now we maybe have 200, New York State maybe has, I want to say, 240 people who are life without parole. Um, you know, that's still nothing compared to like a state like California, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but they also still legally have the death penalty. Um, but those all came in this, this whole wave of, in the, the 90s, and, and I will say, with the Clinton administration, <laughs> it's whole, you know, all you start seeing these three strikes you're out kind of things, and, you know, these max, you know, all these people who are nonviolent drug offenders giving these severe sentences, and sentences disproportionately, you know, dictated by color of people's skin, how much money people have, you know, and mm-hmm. with the death penalty, one thing that, you know, in this full page ad that uh, Donald Trump took out, he said they should be forced to suffer and when they kill, they should be executed for their crimes. They must serve as examples so that others will think long and hard before they commit a crime or an act of violence. Well, statistically, the death penalty does nothing to deter crime. <laughs> really? <laughs> so that's false. I mean, he's just, he's just being a vindictive person and, you know. As uh, he is. Right. Well, exactly. But you started seeing, a, you know, this, kind of resurgence of the stuff in the 90s and and Trump I mean he he put you know all this this money behind these ads and he just made the you know the the media 
<laughs> go bananas. It was already at this certain point. It just pushed it over the edge. And he started issuing interviews with like Larry King and all these different, you know, calling for, again, calling for the death penalty and more cops and these harsher sentences. And, um, and yes, some politicians listened to that, but, um, it just amazes me that even after the central part five were exonerated, I mean, to this day, he still insists that they're guilty. He, I mean, that it's guy just, is fucking crazy. Well, <laughs> um, yeah, that's putting it mildly, but yes, this denial of facts because when the only thing that convicted that these kids was their false confessions, you know, there was no the, the DNA evidence; it didn't match. You look at all this other forensics from the scene; there was no proof that there were five plus perpetrators or whatever and a victim yeah no you you don't have to be you know the one um was it uh dwyer i think the journalist who oh, said jim dwyer at, from the times yeah you yeah. could look at the crime scene and photos and see there was only room for two people to operate in that crime scene the victim and the perpetrator yeah. you know not you a don't pack of be, wilding dangerous exactly. youths exactly and it just trump has just refused to accept these facts and now the documentary was made in 2013 the okay. case actually with um this the uh with the uh, new york uh, sorry new york state was settled in december 2014 yeah it was settled for uh 52 million um, and I believe there's still a case with this, or you know, that was brought up with the city of New York. Um, but in 2014, after the the state settles, you know, Trump comes out. He's writing more op-eds for the Daily News again, which is the more one of the more conservative and trashier, you know, news sources we have going here. Name close um, to the Weekly World News, <laughs> right? Um, but he's still going out and saying that basically this whole attitude of, well, you know, they're guilty of something. And it just shows the settlement just means that there was some sloppy police work. Doesn't mean that they're not guilty. Mm. You know, and I, I just, I, I, it's funny. I, uh, I was reading, <laughs> I, I know last year during the, the presidential campaign, a, a, a lot of this did, like Trump's involvement in the case or whatever, did come out again in the media. Um, the Guardian had some great articles about it. Um, didn't I think see a you lot. sent me one of them. Yeah. The, uh, but last, but I found something interesting is that even in this past October, so... Trump, um, John McCain, who had been endorsing Donald Trump, well, Trump says something again, refusing to acknowledge the innocence of these guys. And that's one of the reasons John McCain says, I'm pulling my endorsement of Trump. He oh, can't okay. accept facts. Now, I was shocked. I'm like, what, 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 what? John McCain's a voice of reason here? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Ugh. It's. 
it's so and, crazy that also that he he who constantly denies saying shit that he's on videotape saying right is saying that these guys confess so blah 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 it's just locker room talk don just locker room talk yeah yeah it's uh it just it just boggles my mind that and again here he had this massive amount of money to put these you know slanderous distorting ads in the papers you know and which again the the jurors in the case who knows how many of them actually saw something but it it began to affect all this other media coverage as well mm-hmm. you know after trump did that it's just kind of like this whole downward spiral and you just couldn't i, I could see people just couldn't escape from it um yeah it just trump i mean trump towers trump plaza or whatever they they have beautiful views of central park so i i suppose in some way also he saw this like the whole you know mayor koch oh central park is holy Mm. you know oh it's my backyard you know how could something horrible like that happen in my backyard and you have yeah trump with his wealth he's calling for justice for this woman who deserved justice, absolutely, but because he he called for it because she was white and wealthy, you know, yeah. it's it wouldn't have happened at all if it had been a different victim. No, and I, um, he only cares about his peers. Right, right, and 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 that's just so sad that. Because even, you know, they, they say in the documentary that Mateus Reyes on April 17th, just two days before this, had committed a rape in this very close in vicinity to this mm-hmm. area in Central Park. Yeah. They had his DNA. Okay. There was this one detective, um, Sheehan, I think is his, his name. He was working that case. And he was also working the Central Park jogger case. He didn't look at the two of them together, which, I mean, I'm not saying, oh, you should automatically assume they might be the same person, but I would think you would consider maybe it is the same perpetrator. And they had already had this series of rapes going on, you know, in the upper, on the, on the east side. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mateus Reyes was when he was eventually caught in August of, uh, 89, I mean, he had, he had progressed to murder at that point. So who's to say if these cops hadn't said, you know, or compared DNA, Oh, this is the same person in these two, you know, and they are already looking at Mateus Reyes in the case on the, for the rape on the 17th because they'd gone around to the hospitals and, figured out this is the guy who had stitches you know it Mm -hmm. maybe they could have pulled him off the streets faster maybe he wouldn't have committed any more rapes maybe he wouldn't have murdered you know i mean Mm -hmm. it just these people were blinded to some extent by i think the the money factor 
I really think that made a huge difference too. Cause honestly, if I, I mean, I sometimes think I'm like, if I had been the victim, I mean, I'm a white woman, but I'm not wealthy. I mean, would they have paid attention to me? You know? Yeah. A little bit less. I would say, yeah, a little, you know, if a we're thinking less. honestly, a little bit less because I, I don't have a wall street job. God, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I'm doing good to afford my Brooklyn apartment. And <laughs> yeah, you have a history of liberal tendencies. Yes. And I live in a very racially mixed neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> I'm not in a financial, you know, profession. It's, you know, they're, you want to believe that the law is going to look at all these cases equally. Everyone deserves justice. But, you know, <laughs> the when cops... When the law looks through somebody else's eyes, right? it brings part of them with it. Right, right. And so you look, I mean, the money factor, but then you add into the race factor on top of that, it just starts... And you were in an environment... Like I said, the, the documentary is great in bringing out New York City as a character in this story. Because mm -hmm. it really was. That entire, it was, it was the perfect timing. You know, all these different racial tensions. You know, all this crime rate already out there. Cops just kind of went with it. And the media went with it. And the media went with it partly because of the cops, in my opinion. Like I said, going back to, it was the cops using the term wilding. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the kids at all. Like, like I said, I mean, I, in, in talking to, to Yusuf and, you know, and Corey, and I, I've met Raymond uh, once too, but it's, they're like, this term wilding, no, it was not slang. It did not exist. It was a bullshit thing that the cops came up with. Well, what's interesting is, um, and I, I've read uh, Sarah Burns' book that she put out on the mm -hmm. case, um, which I highly recommend. It's, uh, it's called The Central Park Five, A Chronicle of a City Wilding. Um, cool. Yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's a great book. Um, and it, of course, it, yeah, it's, this is, like I said, this all started as her undergrad, you know, thing and just became a passion project and evolved over the years, end, ending in the documentary. But one thing she does mention in the book is that there's a possibility that one of the kids said something like about the song Wild Thing and the cops misheard it. So that's a possibility as far as an origin, but um. there's no term one. Huh. Yeah. That's the closest you can see is, you know, as Real far as maybe where this works. of operator. Precisely. Precisely. You know, it's... And, and one thing I will say that, um, you know, when this... This was high, so high profile, and Trump, you know, with his ad and everything, pushed it even more high profile. Um, I was reading something recently, and they're talking about how this all of a sudden gathered attention of all these different people 
around the country. And the jogger ended up, she even got roses from Frank Sinatra when she was in the hospital because he'd heard about the case and felt sorry for her. Oh, wow. Like, she had no connection to Frank Sinatra. <laughs> but you know what I mean? But <laughs> it, Yeah, it, it was like... Nice uh... But again, you're not going to do that for the the poor black brown person. You're, you you mm-hmm. just wouldn't see it. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of different um, examples of inequality in this case. Absolutely. You know, there's the economic inequality, racial, gender. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that... Um... I, I found it interesting to see some of the uh, footage and the photos they had of uh, the protest signs and support signs uh, from outside the courtrooms, like the ones that they had supporting the boys, the ones that they had supporting the woman. Um, it, it, interesting, some of the language. You're right. I mean, g- the gender, pl- you know, politics, too, yeah. uh, was definitely at play and one of the signs that caught me uh that was that supported you know that was supported her but was against the boys set because you know because they were minors the sign says there's nothing minor about this crime Uh, i remember that sign i thought that was so fascinating because i i was just i it goes back to this whole sentencing of, are we going to, we're trying these minors as adults, but are they, but they weren't sentenced as adults. I mean, again, Corey Wise, still technically a minor at 16, but that age, you can be sentenced as an adult. And he was, Mm -hmm. but, um, I thought that was a very, that was an interesting fact too. Um, and I really think that, I mean, Mateus Reyes, he was, you know, the real perpetrator. He was 18, so he wasn't much older. But you do, you know, socially and physically, physiologically develop much more between the ages of 16 and 18. Yes. And and one thing, um, there, there has been some discussion that they didn't touch on in the documentary but is in the book um is that Corey wise even though he was the oldest at 16 he um had learning disabilities so when you're talking false confessions people who have learning disabilities are at a higher you know it's a higher likelihood that they're going to give you a false confession same thing with children they want to please you the adult they want to please you, the person in charge. Yeah, authority. Right, right. And none of them implicated themselves in the rape, you know, interestingly enough. You know, they were pointing fingers at everyone else, <laughs> you know. But, you know, Raymond had a, he, he had a good way of saying it is, I was under the impression that I was a witness and helping out. And you know that there had to be some cop sitting there before the video confession, you know, saying, come on, you're, you got to just help us out, you know, help us find out who really did this. Be one of the good guys. Be one of the good guys. And promising, 
you can, you know, cooperate. You can go home. You can go home if you just cooperate. You know, and and Corey's saying that I just wanted to say that to save my life. Yeah. You know, you hear these things, and it's, you know, I don't know if someone were questioning me as as an adult. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I would be nervous too, even if it was something I didn't do. Yeah, I, I get nervous all the time when I interact with police officers at protests and things. I'm like, I'm not doing anything wrong, but I've got that yes. feeling. Right. But I can't imagine being a teenager and in that position. You know, and, it, and it's not even just, oh, did you shoplift a candy bar? Did mm. you rape and attempt to murder this woman? Like, yeah. And you're <laughs> still developing between the, this is the person that I had, you know, a matchbox car of and was in some of my pop-up books and this is a real person that's right. still sort well, of changing at that point well antron he was um what he was 14 yeah or 15 at the time and when his family made bail he didn't even understand what bail meant yeah didn't mean oh you're free to go no you're just temporarily out of jail he didn't understand that at 15 so you know, and and that's what gets me when you have so many cases, again, going back to sentencing of we're going to have minors tried as adults. We're going to sentence them as adults. And these kids, you know, maybe you're more streetwise now than, you know, 25 plus years ago, but mm. still... You're not that much more advanced, really. The brain is not developing at a quicker rate. This is really interesting. I haven't really talked to anybody that's been this involved. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting here is that because I, I've, um, there is a whole group of, uh, well, this case specifically, these kids were just coerced, okay, into making these false confessions. But once you look at some other cases, like in Chicago, there was an entire precinct where it was routine to torture people into false confessions. You had men who ended up on death row, you know, because of false confessions, because they were beaten within an inch of their life, because they were suffocated. You, you know, it... Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's and that case is I mean that's I've uh, worked I kind of on the tail end of some of that of uh, exposing some of the torture that went on with with this specific precinct in Chicago is that the one that was being called the black site or whatever in a lot of the things yes. from yes. Mother Jones and Guardian and Nation and stuff like that yeah okay yeah it started as small as a smaller kind of thing and then evolved in this whole bigger, like, oh, no, this is the expected practice. And Burge, the commander there, um, he ended up being uh, found guilty, but he still had retired, still had full pension. Mm. You know, I mean, I, it, it, and, and luckily you had a governor at the time uh, who realized who started hearing about these cases and that wait there was potential torture going on we need to put a moratorium on the death penalty here and investigate all of this more thoroughly 
ended up overturning the death penalty completely. And, and I think there were, I'm going to say 16 men who were freed from death row there. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, but some of them had been on, had been on death row for almost 20 years before that happened, you know? And one thing that you see with this documentary is that, that it, you know, is sure their convictions were overturned. So now they can, they're not registered sex offenders. Now they can go and apply for a job and they're not convicted felons. Okay. However, they still serve that time behind bars, you know, it's yeah, gone. That's gone. And that's, that's one thing that's very fascinating to me about uh, the, the some of these death penalty cases, and I mean, the Innocence Project uh, has done some amazing, amazing work with that. Um, and yes, they they did help some with in uh, in this case as far as um, overturning the conviction, but it shouldn't. I mean, DNA. You know, they only take cases that where there's DNA. Um, how many cases are there where there's not conclusive forensics or, you know, there's not necessarily DNA, but there's been a false confession, mm. you know? Um, and they, and it's been proven in this country that there have been innocent people who've been put to death. You know, you have, uh, in Texas, <laughs> <laughs> Rick Perry, even though like all these, uh, you know, experts came out and said, oh, no, this guy, you know, Cunningham, he's completely innocent. You killed, you know, the state of Texas killed him already. Rick Perry, as governor, wouldn't, you know, admit any kind of, you know, wrongdoing. Wouldn't issue an apology even, saying that, oh, even maybe it was questionable? Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. And that's what amazes me is some people who are so very pro death penalty you have to point out to them that what there's we know people innocent people have been put to death how can you risk that i mean that alone to me shouldn't be an argument that why the death penalty even exists yeah that's the nukem mentality right right and that's one thing that you do see after in the aftermath of the Central Park Five case, is that they were exonerated, and the media and it, some outlets and you know mouthpieces still had this you know thing, and were still saying things like, "Well, maybe they didn't do that, but they were still doing something wrong." Not necessarily. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's different, <laughs> and so much of that does carry through to cases you see across the country um that involve the death penalty well okay maybe they didn't do this but they did something wrong well you know how can how can you say just maybe that seems to me that there's a reasonable doubt <laughs> a yeah, there, there seems doubt. to be a, a big gap between what they were accused of and i mean even when they said that they were bugging the people bothering the people on the bicycle on the other side of the park which should have helped them had not been connected to something on the other side it's still not the right. same thing 
No, absolutely not. And they were in a group of 25 kids. Doesn't mean they were the ones bugging those people. You know, could just be some jackass that you're standing next to. I mean, (laughs) how many of us have, you know, been hanging out with friends and they do something stupid and we don't. And we're like, well, it's the guilt by association kind of thing. It's amazing to me that we still, this still happens every day. You know, it's getting better, but. You know, and and yes, that's partly because you do have some better forensics. Mm -hmm. Um, DNA matching is completely different now than what it was in 1989. But again, what if you have a case where there isn't DNA? You know, there can still be a false confession. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's one of the areas that hasn't really been advanced by science. Absolutely, absolutely. And when you have states that are coming up with these different sentences where, yeah, we're going to, I mean, the Supreme Court has been making some strides in the past 15 years where, okay, you're not supposed to, (laughs) okay, legally, you can't execute someone who is, you know, is mentally, you know, is mentally retarded, but... (laughs) Or, you know, under that line of whatever mental retardation. But it still happens. Yeah. Yeah, It's happened. You know, people under the age of 18 aren't supposed to be sentenced to death. Doesn't mean you're not going to have some, you know, congressperson or whomever who's going to start, who's going to, you know, get over, get on this crusade of tougher sentencing. Who's to say we're not going to be pushed towards that when... You know, we're, we're stepping backward in so many different ways. It seems like we've made a lot of progress and, uh, <laughs> in the, the legal realm, but so many steps are being taken or, are, 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 you know, being made backwards now. Yeah. By leaps and bounds. Right. Right. You know, getting into the bigger sense of it. Uh, I forget if I showed you that I after the first five days of this new regime, uh, mm-hmm. I did the math and it was something like if he had eight whole years to compare to the last three of the last four presidents who both had two terms, he would be expected to do somewhere around 5,000 executive actions. Right. Compared to the... 260, 270 or so that Obama had. Yeah, I think it was 264 for Obama. Yeah, and 270-something for which W. Was, Bush. Yeah, which was less than Bush, which was less, which Bush was even less than Clinton. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. I was yeah. kind of happy to see the judge in New York being what I saw as the first one to put a stop to the anti-immigration uh, or don't even want to call that that the uh anti-arab muslim ban quote unquote yeah well that's um not a done deal that's a temporary Temporary. thing just like the Uh, one in boston that's temporary also yeah but uh and what's interesting is actually i was um i was with a friend yesterday and we were riding very close to the federal courthouse in brooklyn 
And I was, you could hear shouts from like three, four blocks away of people who were outside the, because uh, that's the main immigration courts. Mm. Um, and you, you know, that was right before I guess the ACLU had gotten, uh, gotten that temporary stay. Yeah, interestingly enough, but uh, I, I, I had friends who were, I mean, who were like texting and and posting different pictures and social media and video up until like two three in the morning of protests going on at the airports and i mean mm. i'm i'm glad to see it's and it's not just one place it's you know it's all over there's one going on at the john glenn uh airport here in columbus uh started about an hour ago yeah yeah no and there was a there was another um, massive one here this a- this afternoon, um, like San Francisco and, you know, DC and LAX, you know, all these different things, which, and another thing I, th- I th- <laughs> with the, with the thing yesterday that I thought was interesting is that the New York city, um, cab, uh, commission, mm-hmm. they were refusing to do pickups from JFK airport for an hour yesterday evening in protest. And I'm I like, saw that. do you realize how many cab drivers here are immigrants? <laughs> and how many of those immigrants are Muslim? I, everyone I've ever had in New York. A, 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 a fair amount. And I was like, I was just like, it wasn't just a handful. It was the actual union organization, like officially did that. That's I thought that cool. was fantastic. But on the other hand, you had like, Uber was, oh, we'll cut our surges right now. And they were acting as scabs to Uh, counteract. I was wondering why I was seeing things about the owner of Uber defending his relationship with Trump. Yeah, that was that was something I I found out. But yeah, um, yeah, and it it was just it's just amazing to me that, you know, I. Cause I get text alerts about like delays on all the public transportation here and, um, the airports and stuff. And I just kept getting them yesterday, like just hours upon hours, you know, <laughs> expect delays because of ongoing protests at JFK expect, you know, ongoing <laughs> delays, which last week when we had the, um, women's March here too, it was, it was the same thing. Expect, you know, ongoing delays because of, you know, protest March. I'm like, they're, it's something satisfactory in the fact that people are standing up and fighting back. Yeah. Um, and it seems to be a lot of people who weren't necessarily doing that before Trump got in office. It really seemed to galvanize a lot of people that were on the fence. Yeah. And beyond it, but, you know. It... <clears throat> well, and when you consider the amount of deportations that went on under the Obama administration compared to the Bush administration, the rhetoric sounds like, oh, Obama was better. But no, Obama was deporting more people. Yeah. <laughs> and in that, yes, I know here in New York, we've had plenty of, you know, pro-immigration kind of, you know, rallies and things for years. I've gone to quite a few and I have a lot of friends who um, actually our immigration lawyers and social workers who work with that regularly. And so, you know, those people were going, have been going for years, but when you have Joe Schmo, you know, standing up there now, 
something refreshing to see that. And with the, to bring it back, I guess, to the Central Park Five documentary, you're seeing these different sense, sentencing, um, you know, things, it's harsh sentence proposals being put out there. You're seeing a lot more pushback now, you know, than yeah. you did prior to this past November election. <laughs> and uh, also on the documentary, I thought I saw when they were showing footage of the 2002 protests in New York, uh, it looked like, and I don't know if you know this, but it looked like Charles S. Dutton. Do you know who that is? Yes, yes. It looked like it was he who was leading one of the protests when he was like, why are we here in the snow? Uh, he, you I know thought what? that was him, and I know he did jail time, and he is yes. active in that sort of uh, activism. Yeah, I know, I know, I know that. I, You know what, maybe that was. I, I didn't, uh, I'll have to, next time I, I watch it, I'll have to go back and look, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I... Personally, I, I wasn't active in that scene here yet at that mm. point. Um, I moved right after 9-11, because uh, that's a perfect time to move to a city. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it took me, you know, probably a, a, a good couple years to get into the swing of just seeing the entire activist scene here, because even though I lived in Cincinnati before this, it's 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 very different a much grander scale a much grander scale um you have so many so many more voices you know it's it, i mean the variety is it's a wider variety a much wider mm. variety of voices too yeah That's uh really cool to see really social media has played a very important role in activism um, I, I think to some extent people take it for granted, but really, honestly, that's, that's the main reason I joined Twitter. <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was just so I'm like, okay, I can keep up with the activist things. Like, and you know, even if I can't go to this rally or whatever, I'm going to, you know, put it out there so someone else can. Yeah. You can um, get the the video stream bouncing around. Right. Well, la la yeah, yesterday I, I was on Instagram looking at videos of the footage out at JFK, the protests at JFK Airport. And that, you know, that's not the easiest place as far as accessibility wise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, you know, the subway does go out there, but then you have to take an air train that's an additional cost or mm -hmm. you have to take a bus in a in addition to get to the actual airport um because you don't yeah most new yorkers we don't have cars i mean honestly that's one of the my favorite things about this city is that i don't have to have a car anymore <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's pretty um, nice but and and you know it's it was so many people getting out to that pro to protest out there and especially at that point where the you know, like I said, cabs, okay, they stopped picking up drivers out there. Okay, so a lot of the cabs weren't going out there. So, okay, if you had the money for a cab, well, you may not be able to take it <laughs> there. <laughs> and then um, they stopped the AirTran 
at train at one point. So you couldn't even do that. So it was like, okay, the city bus is what you were relying on to get there. And it was cold last night. I mean. That was the 30s, wasn't it? Or 20s? Uh, yeah, it was, yeah. It was about 30. So you uh, have. Fahrenheit for our UK listeners. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Below freezing. <laughs> yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. In a world gone mad. As you know, the doomsday clock is a symbolic clock face analogizing humankind's proximity to extinction. One man must fight to survive on the global junkie of the future. You maniacs! You blow it up! Ah, damn you! God damn you all to hell! Which? Versus the Doomsday Clock is that man's story. His search for entertainment is transmitted across time and space for your listening pleasure on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and your Android device. This podcast is not fit for human consumption. Some effects include laughter, concern, nausea, vomiting, and burning for more purposes. The producers accept no responsibility for any side effects, illness, or attempt prank to find cause. My bank guarantee is worth nothing. Zero, 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 In short, you get nothing. Nothing. Good day, sir. Hi, I'm Joe Parker, and I'd like to invite you to check out my show, The Hybrid Moments Podcast. I'm just an average guy with a slew of interests, and the podcast is an extension of that. The theme of the show varies episode by episode, but some of the topics I cover include horror, music, comics, just about anything but politics. So if you like a little variety in your life, come on by and check out the show. You can find me on iTunes or Stitcher, or check out the website, thehybridmomentspodcast.com. You can also join the group on Facebook at The Hybrid Moments Podcast in the group section. Feel free to mingle, leave feedback, or suggestions for future shows. That's The Hybrid Moments Podcast with Joe Parker. Tune in to see what I cover next. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Uh, necrophilia. Uh, uh, uh. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get out of it. It's unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything Dude, that kept little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How be did a you rough watch one. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Program. So it was a pretty amazing that it was shut down partly um, for, ma- there are about, 
like I said, the cabbies had shut, had a uh, stopped serving JFK for about an hour. And then, um, it was probably half an hour to an hour where the air train stopped running. Um, they were only, they would, and then a little bit longer than that, they were only allowing people who had, uh, uh airplane tickets on there. Mm. So even if you were going to meet someone, you couldn't, you know, go. But uh, one one of the things about I I did want to mention since we're talking about transportation, um, the with the documentary, um, like I said, you have you have the support of the family base. Um, I think that's what got these guys through you know, as well as they did. And when you're talking about New York City, you know, we we don't, most of us don't have cars. And to get to these prisons and juvenile uh, detention centers upstate, it's not easy. It um, It's not easy to do without a car. Mm. Um, yeah, even Rikers, I mean, you can... You can get to, but you have to, you have to take like, okay, I take the subway, then I'd have to take the city bus, and then I get there and I'd have to take another bus, a special bus. Like a Greyhound or something? Um, no, there's like a, a, the Department of Corrections has a specific bus. Oh. And then there's like a, a ferry. I mean, so it's, <laughs> you're you're devoting a lot of time just to go visit people. And how long do you even get to visit? I've never uh, visited anybody in prison. Well, when I, the, the maximum uh, security places that I've, uh, I visited a couple different ones here in New York State, it, we were given, um, I think, only an hour. Yeah. And, you know, you can... And what you have to go through transportation-wise to get there, then what you have to go through as far as um, what you can and cannot wear, and you can't take these, you know, you can't take whatever gifts. I mean, obviously it depends if it's someone who's in a minimum versus maximum, whatever, you know, medium security prison. But what you have to go through with all of that and the whole rigmarole, even to get into the room to see the person you're talking to, you know, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty significant devotion of time. Um, I mean, like Sing Sing is perhaps I would say the closest, um, maximum security facility to New York city and even that, for me to get there, I'd have to still have to take um, the subway, probably two trains from my apartment <laughs> to get yeah. to, to Metro North, the train service that goes from New York City like into Connecticut. And, and it's not like, oh, just ooh, first stop outside New York City. No, Ossining, New York is it's a little bit outside the city. You know, and then once you get to the Metro North stop there, you'd have to take a bus or get a cab. So if you're talking about people who don't have a lot of money, they're not able to necessarily go visit their loved ones. Mm -hmm. that, 
um, you know, in the documentary when they were saying that Corey and Raymond, their families couldn't afford bail. Well, their families probably couldn't afford to go visit them that often, you know? And I, I mean, I can't say for certain, but you know, you, you can't, you talk about people who can't afford bail or they can't afford a good attorney or an attorney at all. You're given a public defender, you know, and then once you go behind bars, your, you know, your loved ones can't afford to come visit you. I mean, it's, 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 I, I've kept up as a pen pal with, um, a few different people who, um, are incarcerated. And that's one thing is like, there's like one guy I've, communicated with where he's like yeah my mother lives in New York City and he was happy when he was moved to, you know he was in multiple facilities but he was like in Auburn where Corey was mm-hmm. and that was that was a trek his mother couldn't come up there one she couldn't afford it two she had health issues you know it and and so he was thrilled when he was moved down to Sing Sing, <laughs> you know, and that wasn't even necessarily that far from her. But again, it was still not cheap because I pay for my subway, but then you have to pay a whole other thing to get onto Metro North, you know, mm-hmm. and that cost increases depending on the length of time you're going to be on the train. You know, it, you know, he's like, I'm lucky if I see my mother once a year, you know, and and then it got to a point also because her health started failing, she couldn't come see him, you know? And, and then, you know, he, his, uh, stepfather also wasn't happy about, you know, the mother coming to see him. So the, it got to a point it, for a while where he started hearing from his mother even less and less and just getting a letter and certain facilities have the restrictions they have on what kind of mail you can give a prisoner. You know, I, I regularly will do holiday cards for prisoners and like certain one, one that's very interesting. Um, cause I've done some things with the Sylvia Rivera law project that works with, um, trans and gender nonconforming, um, individuals, but with their program, the way a lot of the trans people are dealt with because a lot of times they're just thrown in solitary confinement. Uh, um, like, uh, Chelsea. Yeah. 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 Supposedly for their own safety. No, it's not. It's one, it's a way to fuck with them, but you know, it's, you have someone who's like that, who might be in solitary confinement. They can't get a Christmas card that has glitter on it. You know, because the glitter is somehow considered contraband. I mean, I just like, <laughs> like, seriously, like this. These are the restrictions, and when that are there, and what's put into place for someone who does go behind bars, you know, the odds are completely stacked against you if you get out of there. You know, like how how damaged are you when you come out? You know, like one thing you know, Raymond saying in the documentary about how I can't make eye contact with you for a long period of time. I have, I'm like constantly looking around the room, 
even now, and he's been out, he's been released, you know, it's been 15 years since he is behind bars, you know? Yeah. Someone the effect who, of that span of time and that intense right. situation at that pin, like, that perfect point in his development. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and that's, you hear those kind of stories from people who, you know, who are incarcerated, even if they don't, even if they're not that young when they go into prison, you know, if they're in their twenties or thirties, when, you know, if they come out, you hear those same kind of stories of, I, I can't look people in the eye because I, or I, I, I'm always on edge, you know, pretty much like sleeping with one eye open. You're damaged forever. Yeah. You know, it's. Yeah. Brings up the cruel and unusual punishment aspect Ab of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why, I mean, people who've been in solitary confinement, um, you want to talk about another case of falsely incarcerated, uh, wrongly incarcerated. Um, the West Memphis three, um, I did some work with that too, and actually was able to meet uh, Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin after they were freed. And Damian Eccles, he was, and they were juveniles too when they were put in. But Damian Eccles, because he was 18, you know, he got the harsher sentence, <laughs> you know. And he spent years, like over a decade, in solitary confinement. He permanently, you know, he was behind bars 18 whatever years. He permanently has to wear special kinds of lenses in his glasses because he can't handle the light. You know, mm. he's permanently physically damaged, not just coded in. Exactly. You have so when he that's what gets me to like, you know, like I say in solitary confinement with trans and gender nonconforming prisoners. You know, these people will be put in that situation and are told, oh, it's for your safety. It's not for your safety necessarily. You know, it's... <laughs> it's yeah. This is where I'm putting you because this, this is what I'm, I think of you. Exactly. And you might have... You might not have a window at all. You might have only one hour a day outside of that cell. Mm -hmm. And it might not even be fresh air. So, yeah, the, the, the issue of cruel and unusual punishment, I mean, the look at the way our country sentences and treats our prisoners compared to other countries is, um, it's, it's, it's pretty severe. I mean, we're, I think we're, you know, we're usually in the top five countries in the world as far as like how many people we put to death. You know, we're up there with countries that we consider barbaric, like, you know, Saudi Arabia and China. And, you know, meanwhile, you have, you know, the rest of the industrialized world, you know, they're looking at us like we're what's wrong with you? We were punishment versus rehabilitation. Absolutely. There is not rehabilitation. It, it really doesn't exist much at all. And one thing that. I'm glad that was in the documentary too, that saying, you know, you have some of them who were able to get educations, like college degrees while they were on inside. And then that's they did away with it. 
those programs have been stripped, you know? On one of one of them was too late. I forget which, yeah. which, which of the guys it was, but he was too late to use that. Yeah, Antron, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So these are people who were not even sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. No, they were sentenced to a five to ten year, you know, term. And you don't care what, you know, it's going to happen when they come out. Do you want these people to be productive members of society? And I say this not just people, you know, this should be across the board. Even if someone is completely guilty or whatever, you know, you serve your time, you should be able to come out and still be, you know, still try to, you know, live a, you know, constructive life. I mean, it's... (laughs) That's why they say you paid your time. Exactly, exactly. Um, Yeah, which is why I don't understand, you know, these people who just completely lock up, lock them up, throw away the key. You know, someone like Trump who's like, their sentences shouldn't have been vacated. You know, they should constantly have this mark on their whatever. I don't want to have to change my perception. Exactly. But, you know, it's totally, again, this goes to the money factor of someone who might be convicted of a white collar, oh, I've embezzled, whatever, you know, I get out of jail. I can still go on and, you know, do whatever job and... Yeah, work on uh, some cable news networks or write a book. Right, sure, sure. Do the, oh, do the speaking I can tour. start a new company. Or, okay, I'll be on the board of this corporation, blah, 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 blah. I'll be you in know, the think just, tank. Right, exactly. Exactly. I'll it's, be in the cabinet. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sit on the National Security Council. I'll, uh... Right. I'll run the treasury. I have a proven track record of doing things with money. I won't say if they're good or bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's, um, you know, because usually it's people who are convicted of embezzling or whatever trades, security trades, you know, uh, violations, and they're, they're not given a massive sentence. I mean, I mean, come on, Bernie Madoff is the exception there. Yeah, well, that's because he, he turned he in the other so many ones. rich people out of money. Yeah. It wasn't poor people that he fucked over. It was the rich people. And you that, know, you know that speaks volumes. And I will say, I'm I, this documentary does do a good job of. I think um, it makes even if I hadn't 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 been involved in any of this, you know, criminal justice stuff here in New York City, and you know, and, and met, you know, and worked with Yusuf and and such. It's the way it's done. Again, goes back to what I was saying of. They've been, you know, it was smart abandoning the typical Ken Burns narrative style and just going for these are the people telling the story of what happened to them. And and the families, I mean, it's true. They serve the sentences to some extent, even though they're outside of bars. You know, what do they have to go through and how has their life changed to maintain that contact. One thing that is interesting too is that since the media did go wild with this case, 
the families um, did receive death threats. And apparently, after Donald Trump put that full-page ad out, the death threats increased tremendously. So yeah, it wasn't... has that effect. Yeah, it wasn't just these five boys that were accused of the crime. It was their families, too. And it's, yeah, it's a permanent blemish that they have to live with, even though they were cleared of it. It's been quiet, relatively, as far as the media coverage of how they were cleared. And, and they still carry the burden of, I was behind bars for however long, and I had to experience in all these different things. I can't get rid of that. I'm really glad uh, that you you picked this movie, this film. I usually ask everybody, I think we've kind of already covered it. I think I ask everybody at the very beginning, but what <laughs> made you think of this to be the one that you wanted to do? I think, well, we do have just such, just the way our criminal justice system is, is kind of laid out and all the faults of different things. But there was also the Donald Trump connection, I have to say. Um, there, were, there are plenty of other documentaries I could, I could suggest it, but this one, it's such a horrendous situation. And it is such a good documentary. It really is. Um, that, and it just, because it keeps popping up when, like I said, you had... Trump talking about it again just in this past October before the election, you know, and it's it's something that none of these people can can escape. What uh, if somebody was listening to us talking right now and wanted <laughs> to get more involved, if you wanted to give anybody a shout out or anything right here? Um. Well, campaign and death, to end the death penalty, like I said, I mean, I done a lot of work with that um but the innocence project they do such amazing work and there is a, a podcast that started recently that um call um called wrongful convictions and they've been working very closely with uh the innocence project and their first episode actually was an interview interview with raymond santana i mentioned that um but they're i mean the aclu you know, I mean, you could you could go. There's there's a long list. I think I put a link to them in every episode description so far. Well, probably, yeah, <laughs> a multi-purpose organization. But um, I think for this specifically, I would definitely, like I said, give a shout out to a campaign and the death penalty and um, the Innocence Project. They both do some amazing work. Was there anything about the the film that we didn't touch on that? you wanted to uh, before we go into the wrap up? Um, well, like I said, I watched the special features on the disc and, and I do recommend if anybody's kind of interested in a little bit more, you know, go ahead, buy the movie or rent the disc and watch those. They're not, you know, a million and one things, but it is interesting to have, they have a discussion with all the directors. Um, and you know, when, the group of boys are talking about everything and how doing this documentary was such a therapeutic process for them. Um, like it, you know, it's, 
it's just, it's very heartfelt and you can see how the families, it was therapeutic for them as well. And I, and maybe because it was a family that was involved in directing it, maybe mm -hmm. that they were more willing to open up to some things, but this was really the first time that they, they opened up and, um, I, 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 I recommend definitely. Did you say that you, uh, were starting a podcast? I am, um, probably will be first episode in March. I will give more details later. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's cool. I can cut this whole little still bit out. Off, yeah, still working on some details, but, um, it's on the horizon. It's on uh, the horizon. Yeah. I can cut that out if you want to do a more official announcement at some point. That's okay. You don't have to just, okay. it's in the works. <laughs> well, <laughs> I would love to listen to your podcast. Uh, you're really fun to talk to today. Thanks a lot. I was, you gave me newspaper articles to check out and you made this really easy for me. I kind of felt like, uh, you brought a lot to the table today. Well, it's, um, it's a case I'm very familiar with. Um, and it's something I'm a pa I'm passionate about. Yeah, I mean it's and I have to say I'm I'm glad that you started this podcast because I I've, I've always kind of had this uh schizophrenic thing where I'm like, "Oh, my love for movies. Oh, my love for politics." And <laughs> now they collide. It's kind of <laughs> I got I in at the right time. I know. I can't say I've seen that out there. So I'll try to keep it uh worth checking out. But uh yep. People like you make that real easy. Um, so thanks everybody for listening whenever this is. <laughs> uh, if you're listening in the future, I hope things are a little bit better. So thanks, Vanessa. I hope to have you back sometime. Um, of course. My pleasure. Remember to duck and cover. Thanks a lot. Fuck the police coming thanks. straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back because I'm brown. And not the other color, so police. Selling narcotics. You rather see me in the pen than me and Lorenzo rolling in a benzo. Be the police out of shape, and when I finish, bring the yellow tape to tape off the scene of the slaughter. Still getting swallowed up bread and water. I don't know if they fags or what. Such a nigga down and grabbing his nuts. And on the other hand, without a gun, it can't get none. But don't let it be a black and a white one. Cause they'll slam you down to the street top. Black police showing out for the white cop ice cube will swarm on any motherfucker in a blue uniform just cause i'm from the cpt punk police are afraid of me huh a young nigga on the war path and when i finish it's gonna be a bloodbath of cops dying in la yo dre i got something to say Testimony to the jury about this fucked up incident. Fuck the police and Ren said it with authority.
on the street is a majority of gang. It's with whoever I'm stepping. And a motherfucking weapon is kept in a stash spot for the so-called law. Wishing Ren was a nigga that they never saw. Lights start flashing behind me. But they're scared of a nigga, so they mace me to blind me. But that shit don't work, I just laugh. Because it gives them a hit, not to step in my path. But police, I'm saying, fuck you, punk. Read my rights and shit, it's all junk. Pulling out a silly club, so you stand with a fake ass badge and a gun in your hand. But take off the gun so you can see what's up. Go at it, punk, and I'ma fuck you up Make you think I'ma kick your ass But drop your cat, and Red's gonna blast I'm sneaky as fuck when it comes to crime But I'ma smoke them now and not next time Smoke any motherfucker that sweats me Any asshole that threatens me I'm a sniper with a hell of a scope Taking out a cop or two They can't cope with me The motherfucking villain that's mad With potential to get bad as fuck So I'ma turn it around Put in my clip, yo Don't give a fuck to say Peace. 